that vulnerability in the spirit is what makes a change in the bridge between your body and your soul. When your heart and your mind become vulnerable to the move of God, then there can be a direct communication. Because the bridge, the final plank of the bridge has been put in, and you can start communing with God on a level that you need and that he needs. God needs your love. He wants your love. He desires for your love. If he didn't want your love, he wouldn't have died for your love. The wonderful part about the God that we serve is he is a reciprocating God. He's not a one-way street. Amen? There are many gods with a lowercase g on the earth that are a one-way street. You pray to them, you might get an answer. You sacrifice to them, you might get a result. You do what you can to appease them, and they may acknowledge you. But Yahweh is a two-way street kind of God. Jesus is bled, bled, bled and blood bought us so that we could have a direct communication with the throne room so that whenever we come to a place where we feel like we might be in a valley, he can breathe on us and we can come back to life. Amen? Hallelujah. So as I've thought and I've prayed this week about what to teach, I've met this message with great controversy of my elder, but I'm going to do it in a way that may surprise her. I mean, them. But I believe the greatest trick of the enemy is that he's a trickster. And he's very good at it. And in being the first deceiver and the greatest trickster of all, he's very good at deceiving mortal minds. He's excellent at disguising himself right in front of us. And he's even better at saying that he's bigger than what he actually is. So, how did evil become so evil? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Even more so, how did evil become so big? Have you ever thought of that? And last but not least, how did evil become such a subject amongst men? Where did evil enter in? And how strong is it really? These are the questions I've been wrestling with over the course of this week. And the glasses that Dad gave me have brought great clarity to this subject. (laughs) But I want to start where evil is first mentioned in the book of Genesis. Now, the book Genesis, its title actually begins with Barashit. And the word Genesis actually is Greek. But the Hebrew word for Genesis is Bereshit, to begin or to be born. It is the first part of the Hebrew alphabet. And whenever the book was written in the beginning, they began the book with the first letter of the alphabet, Bereshit. Bahara Elohim. So far, so good. Okay, good. In the beginning, God, the very first book of the Torah, written by Moses, transcribed by Methuselah, imparted by Adam, 
inspired by Jehovah. That's where Genesis comes from. That is the lineage of this book. So in this book, it contains the very first separation from God and man. It describes to us a paradise at which Adam walks in the cool of the day with God. And there were so many things I believe that Adam didn't worry about because he was with God. Because when you're walking in the presence of the Holy Ghost, even in this room and at this level, how much do you worry about when the Holy Ghost is all around you? How much are you really thinking about when you feel the presence of God run up and down your spine like lightning? What are you really focusing on? So imagine that as your evening routine. That you are standing next to that power that electrifies your body and clears your mind in the cool of the day. So there were a lot of things that Adam, I'm sure, became very overwhelmed by as soon as he exited the garden. Because his evening routine was basically a spiritual cleaning, a mental relaxation. The stress level that this man had was probably next to nothing. Because he had the ultimate de-stressor meet with him every evening and counsel him and talk to him and speak to him about the creation of the world and how it became where it was, where it is, and where it will be. The secrets that Adam had locked inside of his mind for the 950 years that he lived were above and beyond anything you can think or imagine because he had direct personal communication with God. But oftentimes we title Adam as being the buffoon that was tricked by Eve. When in all reality, Adam was most likely the most intelligent being created because he was not only in charge of tending the fertile crest or the garden of Eden which depending on which timeline you go by could be miles upon miles in dimensions but he was also responsible for personally naming every animal in existence He had enough in himself as a created being to create an identity for other creation. How many times have you walked up on something, looked at it, and said, what is it? Your mind couldn't conceive it, but Adam's did. He named it. He didn't ask what it was. He named it. So Adam being this superior thinker, this everyday evening walker, And this person that is constantly surrounded by the Shekinah glory of God lived 950 years just by being in the presence of God alone. Had hundreds of children, poor Eve, but had hundreds of children that we are not told about in the book of Genesis, but it's recorded in other writings such as the Talmud and the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of the elders of Israel. They were not included in the canon in 325 AD because they were not considered acceptable according to the Council of Nicaea because it was, quote-unquote, too Hebrew. At the time that the Council of Nicaea assembled the canon, Jews were deemed as possessed by the devil or hand-in-hand with the devil. There have been 25 books written from the time of Christ to present identifying Hebrew people directly associated with the devil. So most of the time whenever we are looking back in history as to the assembly of the canon, we find that the men writing or deciding what goes into what we read is mostly designed around removing as much Jewish custom as possible. 
So now let's take a look at evil from a Jewish perspective for a moment and see what kind of characteristics we pull from it. Because if the book of Genesis was inspired by Yahweh, imparted to Adam, in whom Methuselah took it down, and then Moses did the final authoring of it, the last time I checked, all those people are Hebrews. So their perspective on the book and their perspective on evil and their perspective of God is the first-person perspective. And any other perspectives that come after that, whether they be Greek, Latin, Roman, or English, are diluted from the original experience because the original writer has the strongest authority over what he's putting on paper because it's his first-hand experience. So in that environment... I did a, a little experiment because I've got books and books and books and books and books, <coughs> but I cheated and took the easy way out and went with the internet. It was kind of nice, actually. <laughs> it was really nice. And, and there is so much. I mean, I started looking through at the, the letterhead after letterhead of different books. Like, yeah, I've read that one. Oh, I haven't seen that one. But if you just take Webster, Webster's Dictionary that's on the internet, and you type in the word Satan, and how that entity is viewed, you get two different results. The first result is according to Hebrew tradition, and the second result is according to Christian tradition. Now take a listen to this. I thought this was very interesting. Satan, according to the Hebrews, the angel who the Jews believe is commanded by God to tempt human beings to sin or accuse the sinners and to carry out God's punishment. This is according to the Hebrews and their translation of who the Satan is. It's not actually Satan singular worded, it's a title, the Satan. According to the Christians, a rebellious angel who in Christianity, Christian belief is the adversary of God and the Lord of evil. That's my penmanship. According to the Jews, the angel who, in Jewish belief, is commanded by God to tempt humans to sin, to accuse the sinners, and to carry out God's punishment. Now, if you read that in its context, by that definition, it sounds to me that Satan has no room to rebel. Right? He has no room for error, actually. He's, he's actually considered to be commanded directly by God and is basically a puppet on strings according to the authority of Yahweh. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not right. That can't be right. Jews are wrong. There's no way that's right. I'm more along the lines of the rebellious angel who in Christianity is the adversary of God and the Lord of evil. Now, 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 which one has more power? The Lord of evil has a lot more power than the angel who's told what to do by Yahweh. I mean, if I had to pick between two titles, being told what to do and being the Lord of evil... So let's think about that. 
Where is the etymology, meaning the source of the word Satan? Where does it come from? Because as soon as I read that, I was like, wait a minute, whoa, this is not anywhere near in line with what I'm thinking. What's going on here? So I naturally dove in with both hands and both feet. So etymology is the study of words and where they come from and how they change over time in translation. So the etymology of the word Satan starts, we're going in reverse order, with Middle English to Old English to Latin to Greek to Hebrew. And finally landing in Hebrew, the Modern English translation from Hebrew to modern English is adversary or tempter. Can also be used to describe a, cro- a prosecutor. So when you say the prosecutor is Satan, you're actually spot on. Because it literally translates to that format. Whenever you put in ha Satan is when it's titling an actual spiritual entity. In the Old Testament alone, there are 11 times at which the word Satan is used to describe an adversary. There are 13 times at which Ha-Satan appears, meaning the Satan, or the title holder of being Satan, the embodiment of the adversary. The other 11 times six of which are used to describe the angel of the Lord as he appears in opposition to Israel. Wow. Isn't that weird? But isn't it amazing how one word over generations can grow to be something so powerful? That's page one. I got two more. So, as I'm looking at the way the Jews perceived Satan as this puppet on a string that is told by God what to do, who to attack, who not to attack, is basically like a rabid dog on a leash who's constantly accusing the race of man. And I read the Christian view of it. He's the opposite. He's the adversary. He's the Lord of evil, this big bad thing. I'm starting to think, how did that image come around? Where did that thought come from? How do we go from in Jewish beliefs that Satan is being told what to do to Christian beliefs to where he's rebellious and can do whatever he wants? Because the last time I checked, the creator of the universe of heaven and earth had control over all things. So how is it that Satan goes from being something that is controlled to something that is out of control? So I dug in, both hands, both feet. I had to, I had to look at it. Where does this madness come from? So the synonyms of Satan, or words that are associated with Satan, one of them, or the first one that popped up was Beelzebub. So raise your hand if you've heard of Beelzebub. How many of you have identified Beelzebub as being an identity of Satan? How many of you knew that it's actually a Philistine god? It is not Satan at all. It is actually a god of the Philistines that was depicted as an evil entity that opposed Israel, but was not ever actually depicted as Ha-Satan or the accuser. The term Beelzebub, going in reverse, because we're going back in time, 
comes from the Old English to the Latin to the Greek to the Hebrew as literally translating a prince of devils or in its oldest translation according to the Philistines, the Lord of the Flies. And is not anywhere near associated with being an accuser or an adversary or a judge or a prosecutor. Neither is he ever identified as being a part of the heavenly host. He was never in heaven. He was man's creation to identify with a God that associated itself with death, but never had anything to do with the Hebrews in their original teachings. It was a made-up God of the Philistines. So if you're trying to cast Beelzebub out of somebody, you might be in trouble because then you're summoning a name that doesn't actually exist from an idol God that was created by man. So you can cast Beelzebub out all you want, but you're conjuring up something that never existed. And the demon that hides inside that body is looking at you laughing, saying, that's not my name. But the shroud of evil became more powerful whenever evil could use the imagination of man. Because as the imagination of man became greater, the appeal of evil became greater, and therefore the idea of evil became stronger. Because Beelzebub, being this lord of death in their religion, actually chose who died, not the creator of life. So that meant that evil and death had more power than life did. And this is why it was such a feared idol god. So after that, I was totally just, I've got it dig even farther because I'm my grandmother's grandson. I could almost smell her perfume in the house. So then I had, to, I had to go to the next link, and this is all just according to Webster. This is one source, just Webster. I cross-reference it with Wikipedia and Hebrew for Christians, two different sites. So we've got three websites to go off of here. <coughs> and about a dozen more that I didn't have time to read because there wasn't enough coffee in the coffee pot. So I had to go to Lucifer. So how many of you have heard of Lucifer? All right. Lucifer is, let's see here. We've got one, two, glasses, three. Three places where we see Lucifer. Two in the Bible, and then two that are not in the Bible. Or two in the Bible and one that's not in the Bible. So Lucifer is used as a name of the devil, not Satan. There is a difference. We'll get there. Big journey here. That's the first source. The second source is Lucifer is associated with the planet Venus when it it appears as a morning star. Now, how did Greek mythology or Canaanite mythology, pop up in the Old Testament. The association of the planet Venus being called Lucifer is from Canaanite mythology. We've heard of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and all the ites, right? Ite. The original translation of Lucifer, when we go back to Hebrew, is Atar. 
Its symbol is the antelope. Its purpose is fertility. Yeah, isn't that fun? This name Lucifer can appear as being a male or female figure, depending on what culture in the Mediterranean Sea that you encounter. Its power is to have uh, governing over the rain and the thunderstorms. It's deeply associated with water. And the reason why the planet Venus became associated with Atar is because Atar attempted to climb the walls of the city of heaven and was cast down by the sun god. That's its story, according to the Canaanites. So who mentions Lucifer in the Bible? Isaiah does in chapter 14. And Ezekiel in chapter 28 of his book. Both instances are referring to the Babylonian kings of their day and describing them as this entity. So now that we see that Atar, or Lucifer, is used as a metaphor to describe Babylonian kings, it appears that they are not talking about the Satan at all, but talking about the religion of the day. The Canaanites believing that this fallen being had some sort of power, and Isaiah calling out the king of Babylon, saying that you are fallen just like your God. If we read, and who wants to be my reader? It's Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, is where Isaiah points out this name, Lucifer. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Pause. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Now, how does that make sense to us now, knowing the story of the Lucifer? He's describing as to how has this idol god fallen from its own place. They called it the son of the morning because it was a star that appeared in the first part of the morning. Go ahead. How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken thy nations? Referring to the Canaanites, how that the belief in their idol gods weakened the nation, and Jehovah was the one true God. So here we are again, looking at Lucifer, believing that this idea or this concept is somehow embodied as something that is powerful, but when we find its origin, we realize that it is another form of mythology being used to chastise the leaders of the day. And has nothing to do with the destruction of Israel, but has more to do with their own self-destruction. But when we read about it and we interpret it without knowing who Lucifer really is, we believe that this son of the morning at one point had some kind of great ascending power. When in all reality, we find out it's idolatry that's been plucked out by Isaiah's choice to describe the demise of the empire that was attempting to hold Israel in check. So evil becomes much less powerful when we know where it comes from. Its identity as being this large force now turns into something of fairy tales. Really, Isaiah was more insulting the title of the king than he was trying to compare him to any kind of power. 
He was looking at the king of Babylon saying, you're going to fall just like your idol God fell, and there's not a thing you can do about it. But when we read it in modern times without knowing who Lucifer really is, we believe that there's a description of this great ascension and this great war and this great falling. Two totally different perspectives depending on how you read it and what you're looking at. So how big is evil really? How strong is evil really? How much power does evil really have? All right, one more jump. Is everybody doing good so far? It's a lot of information. So the first appearance of the Satan shows up in the Tanakh. Did I say that right? Okay, good. It appears in Job ten times and in Zechariah three times, making a total of 13 times that Satan appears in the Old Testament. Now, sometime in the Dark Ages, the imagery of the Satan actually begins to change. The Dark Ages is the 400 years between the last prophets and the coming of Jesus. Because there were no scrolls written, there was no appearance of angels, no prophecies, no word from God. 400 years of silence, that's rough. That's really rough. That's generations of people not encountering God on any level. So, ooh, that's funky. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Do you have that, Mommy? Yep, verses 1 and 2. She's got the Whoa. microphone. You ready? Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the capital L-O-R-D, Lord Jehovah. She drew not near to her God. Who is this describing? In this context, it's Israel. And in Zechariah... You sure you were Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2? No, that's Zephaniah. No, that's Zephaniah. Yeah, Zechariah, the, the verse that I have, maybe he went Zephaniah, I don't know. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. There we go. That's, there we go. Now we're on the right track. Standing before the angel and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan... The Lord rebuked thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuked thee. Is not this the brand plucked out of the fire? This is the place in the Old Testament in which we can draw power onto how to rebuke the powers of darkness. If you read in... The first two chapters of Zechariah and the other minor prophets that are in Zechariah's time, yet again Israel is faced with captivity. Yet again Israel is faced with war. And Zechariah is this prophet saying, y'all got to change or bad things are going to happen. And they didn't listen. 
but in this instance, the Lord is coming to redeem Joshua, the high priest, and push Satan out. Now, what is Satan doing to Israel in this context and in this time period? He is pointing out every sin that he can that Israel had committed. He's also accusing them of every possible fault that he can find. And he's standing before Yahweh as the accuser and the prosecutor in his appropriate role according to the Hebrew context. Where we see him in Job is that he's actually amongst the sons of God. And Yahweh asks him, where have you been? And he says, wandering the earth to and fro, seeing who I can get in trouble. And he looks out and says, have you considered my servant Job? And there's this contest as to see how much Satan can afflict Job to get him to curse God, and Job doesn't do it, and he's rewarded twofold. These two instances as an accuser of the nation of Israel and as an individual are where we find Satan in his truest role. But as Lucifer, we find out that it's not actually the son of the morning or anything that ascended to any power. It's a pagan idol god. And as Beelzebub, it's the god of the Philistines, who's really the god of death, who's really the lord of the flies. So where is Satan in our modern day? And what cloak is he hiding under this time? Because in the generations before us, he takes on all these other forms to embody power. So what is Satan using to disguise his true role in this modern day? Because his only role is to be the puppet to the puppet master. But what is he trying to deceive you into thinking that he's able to do in this time? As we've seen by the other prophets and by the other writers, every time something evil appears, they depict it in old writings, but they don't give it the title of the tempter or the Satan. They have an understanding that it's a foreign custom that is no good for them and should be refrained from, but they don't give it the same power as the Satan because they realize that the Satan is really controlled by God. Only in modern Christianity during the time of the Protestant Reformation and as early as Constantine's introduction of the church do we see that the prince of darkness actually begins to appear. During the early church period, there was a teaching that erupted from the first Christians that there were even seven devils that orbited around the world that prevented Christian souls from entering the afterlife. And these seven demons, you had to have enough spiritual strength to pass through them to get to heaven. They use this reference based off of Daniel's writings as to having his prayers bottled up before they ever reached heaven. And this was considered to be an influence on John the Revelator's Revelator's seven-headed dragon that is depicted in the book of Revelations. So what cloak or cloud is Satan trying to throw in front of the race of man today? How is he trying or what is he attempting to do to show this great evil power that he's been desiring since the beginning of time? The latest and newest term to describe the Satan is actually the term devil. And it was a culmination of three different idols, Pan, Poseidon, and one that I cannot pronounce. Well, IT. Pan, Poseidon, and, oh, Lucifer, 
or and Hades. Sorry, Pan Poseidon, Lucifer, and Hades is a modern recreation of the devil. The image that we most usually see is the trident in his left hand. His legs are like a goat's. His head has ram horns on it. He's red. He's imp-like. He's disgusting looking. This is an infusion of man's imagination in attempt to describe the ultimate evil. But nowhere in the Old Testament do we see a description for the ultimate evil. Even the serpent that was in the Garden of Eden is not directly associated with a spirit. And the great red dragon that we hear about in the book of Revelations is more closely identified with the Leviathan in the book of Job and the Leviathan in the book of Isaiah, having little to do with the snake that tempted Eve, and more to do with a great dragon, a great beast under the water, something that's huge and terrible, and it may have actually been a physical entity, not a spiritual ideal. <coughs> So the devil, as we see it today, and the ideas of the quote-unquote devil come from Germanic paganism and the Druids, and has very little to do with original Hebrew context. The reason why the devil was put in this title is during the time of the writing and the assembly of the King James Bible, the biggest opposition in Europe at the time was Germanic paganism, and the Druid beliefs in the North. And so in order to attain control of how to interpret this evil, the church had to come up with an identity that embodied those beliefs as being evil. They could not directly associate the Satan with any Jewish customs because at that time there were three books out about Jews, and one of them was directly titled The Devil and the Jew. And it shows on the cover of the book where a demon is reaching inside the open skull of a Jew and playing with his brain. And this was a perception of Jewish culture at the time. So having any kind of association with the customs of being that the evil that's in the world is a direct result of the master design of the creator had to be completely deleted. And so they had to associate evil with its own entity and its own power in order for it to have a modern outlook and in order to oppose the Germanic paganism of the day. Instead of subduing that power, they gave it more strength by redirecting the focus of people. Instead of subduing the spirit of evil, they gave it kerosene and ignited a flame that spread from one part of the world to the other. Now in this modern time, we see that people fear the devil, blame the devil for their actions, and even have times where they worship the devil. All because in the early church era, they believed that it was better to disassociate themselves with the original Hebrew context of where Satan laid in the terms of creation and placed him at the same level or to be equal to with the throne of God, not realizing that he was considered one of the sons of God and one of the members of heaven that actually carried out his orders. So where do you see evil in your life today after looking back at just four names associated with this entity and unveil unveiling their actual purpose and their origins? How strong is evil really now? How big is the bad now?
How powerful is this Satan that we've been taught so much about now? How big are his big black wings? How strong are his words? How much power does the devil really have? All this time throughout the generations of modern American Christian belief, the devil has been used to describe the bizarre behaviors of many groups. The Salem witch trials describe an era where hundreds of women were hung or burned at the stake. Like most things, man finally found a physical enemy that they could encounter. And believing that that enemy was inside of a body, they could destroy evil once and for all by dispelling the bodies of these people. By burning hundreds of people, they believed that they would finally conquer evil. Not realizing that they had played into the very trick that they laid out for themselves, giving Satan more power than he ever had. By deceiving themselves with their own doctrine, how much more have we deceived ourselves today with our own thinking? Believing that this serpent, this dragon, this fallen star, this lord of the flies has any power over our life at all. And that most customary Jews actually believe that thus Satan or the ideal of the devil has more to do with the lack of accountability of men than it does with a spiritual entity at all. But if we take into the terms of accountability that most of the time when we're in trouble, it's by our own thinking, then the devil has no power in that at all. It takes us to a level where we say, I did it, it was me, and the devil had nothing to do with it. It was my own best thinking. At no given point in Job's life, nor in Zechariah's time, did the devil actually force either one of these people into sin, but only was a tempter and an accuser. A tempter and accuser has no power to actually manipulate the person into committing an action of sin. It is the actions and thoughts of people themselves that pull them into sin. Therefore, the only time the devil has any power at all is whenever you give him power. If any man be tempted, he's led away of his own lust. So with that thought and that concept... If you feel like you're fighting the devil, maybe you're actually fighting the person in the mirror. If you feel like you're warring with Satan, maybe you're warring with the person in the mirror. If you feel like that there's some great evil presence in your life that is destroying it, maybe you're having anxiety about your own choices. If you feel like that there is a presence holding you down in life, what is your perspective on life? There are spirits that can see the actions of man and read the body language of man because they've been doing it for thousands of years. And they know exactly what it takes to influence us. But they don't actually have any control. And they can be released upon us, just like we see in Job. Yahweh turns Satan loose all over Job's business. His house is destroyed. His children are killed. His servants are destroyed. All of his livestock is massacred. That does happen. And Satan has that ability when he's given it by Yahweh, by God, by the Creator. And at no other point in time can Satan enter into your life at that capacity. 
You may even be doing good things like Job was and be making the appropriate sacrifices of praise and living a good life and still yet receive that kind of attack. But how do you know the difference between a spiritual warfare and my own mental emotional mess-ups? Where do you find that? Only when we actually dive into a relationship with God at which we find our truest discernment and in discernment we have transparency. Do we know the difference between a spiritual attack and a whoops? Right? So the greatest power about this message is not necessarily about where Satan came from, but realizing the power of accountability over the forces of darkness and how often Satan actually doesn't appear in your life and how often the devil isn't actually fighting you, but you're really just fighting yourself. And you believe that God is unleashing hell upon the earth when really God is trying to love you into heaven. And you have this idea that his thumb is on top of your head when really his nail-pierced hands are holding up your side. So the concept and the idea that evil is this great red dragon is the biggest deception of Satan of all. It is the biggest accusation that he could come up with. It was the grandest design that he could just build through the fear of men. He made himself huge, and it was the biggest biggest disguise he could come up with, and he did it right in plain sight, right in front of everybody. He said, this is what I am, but I'm not really. And he did it through the history of the church. He did it through artwork and painting. At one point in the Middle Ages, Satan was used as a comic relief in plays and in stories. He wasn't even acknowledged as a prince of darkness because he wasn't a prince at all. He was a comic relief. How quickly our culture has changed to fear evil, not realizing that evil is at the fingertips of God being controlled, and that he has no free will because he's a creation without free will. Man is the only thing given free will. So how big is a boogeyman? How nasty is he really? What is he really able to do? And any time destruction comes, if it truly is a spiritual ideal, it may not be the Satan. It may be an entirely different spirit altogether. Because he's not omnipresent, he's not all-powerful, and he's not in every place at all times. So with that being said, take a look at Satan and what you think of him. And ask yourself how big he really is. Be blessed this morning in Jesus' name.